Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the You Can Do It Too podcast by Mamba Inspire. I am Mamadou Balde. I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to both showcase black excellence and increase awareness of the multitude of career possibilities out there for up-and-coming black professionals. This podcast will assist in breaking stigmas, barriers, and helping black students believe that they are smart enough to be future doctors, engineers, educators, and entrepreneurs. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Williams Brown. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you, you for having busy. me. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. So let's start by introducing yourself and telling us what you do. Sure. So um, my name is Yvette Williams Brown. I am an associate professor in the Department of Women's Health and Oncology here mm -hmm. at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. I am a gynecologic oncologist by training, and so I care for women with female reproductive malignancies. Are you from Are you from Texas? No, I actually am originally from Alabama, but wow. I did medical school. Um, first of all, I did undergraduate um, school at Xavier University in New Orleans, mm -hmm. and I stayed there in New Orleans and went to Tulane University School of Medicine, and then uh, traveled west to do my OBGYN residency in University of Texas in Galveston, Wow! and then stayed there for my fellowship for gynecologic oncology. Did you want it to go out of state, or it was just the opportunity? You know, I had an opportunity uh, when I was in high school. They called me up, so Xavier University called me up. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure how they got my information, but perhaps it was from, you know, my SAT or ACT, who knows. Um, and they sort of cold called me and said, hey, you know, um, would you like to come to our university? Um, we'll offer you a full scholarship. Wow. And I just thought, hmm, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> um, I had never really considered going out of state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm from a small town in Alabama, um, first generation, you know, college graduate. No one else that I know of is a, me a medical doctor in my family. And so, you know, my parents, they, uh, you know, my dad's retired military and um, he was working in a position, um, you know, I think at the time he was an upholster, he, he had gone back to school to learn how to be an upholster yes, and a uh, carpenter. And my mom, she um, had been trained to be a seamstress. And so she was working uh, in a factory, you know, making clothes. And so, you know, in terms of exposure and, um, you know, what I felt I could do at the time, I thought, I wanted to go to University of Alabama, um, maybe in Tuscaloosa or either in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. um, my sister, who's older, had um, gone to college, and so she was, um, you know, doing engineering. And I thought, well, so that was sort of like my examples of okay, what okay. I felt like I could do. Wow. So, so when, you know, and I had an idea of going to medical school. But I don't think I really recognized or knew how much I had to do to get there. So when I had this opportunity, you know, I had an aunt who is in education, and she said, "Oh, this is a really good school. They um, they specialize in placing African Americans in medical school." Exactly. And, yeah. 
-hmm. And so she said, this is what you want to do. I think this is a really good choice. And I was excited about it, but my parents were a little concerned just because it was New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It was a very unfamiliar place. It was not a place that I don't think I had even gone to before. So I had the opportunity to go the summer before I started in the fall um, to do a summer program there and become more familiar with the, the campus and the location. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I um, really fell in love with the city and um, enjoyed my four years there, learned a lot. And that experience helped set me up to go um, to get accepted into Tulane Medical School. Mm-hmm. In fact, they had an early acceptance program wow. where I was able to apply, I want to say maybe my sophomore year, at the end of my sophomore year. Wow. And um, so there was an interview, an application, you know, uh, and I was one of five people who were accepted in early acceptance. The, um, the stipulations were that you had to maintain a certain GPA. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm sure some other things like you couldn't um, drop certain classes. You know, I can't remember mm-hmm. all the details of it. But either way, um, I was able to maintain my early acceptance. Uh, and I then went into Tulane Medical School once I finished graduation. So it um, turned out to be an amazing opportunity just yes, because yeah. I mean now I look back and I think wow you know it's not super easy taken off of me by getting accepted early into uh, medical school and not having to really uh, think about well am I getting accepted like I had you know that taken off my plate early on yes ma'am wow that's amazing what was like growing up in Alabama uh, at that time? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so it's very, um, even though, you know, the, the law had changed and, you know, there was no, you know, legal segregation and mm-hmm. all those things, um, it was still very segregated mm-hmm. in Alabama. Um, um, there were there there are there were and there still are a lot of inequities in Alabama in terms of um, you know racial minorities being um, put in not not really giving a lot of given a lot of opportunities either through education or um, you know financially in in terms of upward mobility mm-hmm. most of the time people where I live. Um, success was sort of defined as being able to you know have a job that could pay well enough to have your own place whether that be you know a home or um, like a traditional like style home or like a trailer or have a car and you know that was pretty much it Um, if you wanted to do something besides work in a um, hourly wage type job in a factory or, um, you know, be, well, that's pretty much the main jobs, at least in terms of like, you know, people in my community, you would have to join the military Mm -hmm. or um, move somewhere else. And most people then, like the most 
common city people would then move to is Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So Atlanta would give people an opportunity to do other types of jobs. Still, some a lot of it still was um, hourly wage type jobs, mm -hmm. but um, they had an opportunity to be paid more um, and potentially prom be promoted and, and have some chance of advancement. But staying where I was from, which I graduated with 23 people, so wow. it was an extremely small yeah, community. Right. Um, there just weren't a lot of opportunities, you know. So um, I knew early on that I would have to leave in order to um, advance, mm -hmm. but as I said before, I didn't really think about it being outside of the state. Not that I was against it, but mm -hmm. I just didn't really have my eyes set on somewhere else. But I'm glad that the opportunity came along, came along yes, to where I could do that. That's amazing. So you, you came from a home where you're a first generation student. Uh, you had an example for your sister, but still you had to get a motivation somewhere to keep going. So growing up, was education a privilege for you or a expectation? Were you expected to get a degree? Yeah, well, you know, I would say that although my parents didn't really push us in a harsh way, I would say that they were a huge motivation for why me and my sister did so well. You know, I, I think that because of my parents, um, you know, particularly my dad's willingness to move out of that environment to do something, you know, outside of the norm for mm -hmm. himself, you know, for instance, like he, we, we ended up going back to the same community, but where he grew up, things were probably worse than in terms of opportunities than when I was there. So as I said before, you know, really the only ways to sort of go beyond that were, um, you know, education really wasn't an option, mm -hmm. like for my parents. My dad's like 76 now, so back when he was younger, it wasn't like, oh, I'm just gonna go to college. Like that wasn't an option. Yes, it was going to the military or moving to a bigger city to get a different job yes, or to get a job. So he decided to go in the military. And when my mom and my dad got married, of course they moved around so my sister was born in California I was born in Germany we spent some time in Oklahoma and also in Washington State wow. so my early part of our you know growing up we were in a different environment and you know it it um, I think exposed us to different um, cultures and way of life and uh, when we moved back I was in the third grade because um, we moved back a couple of times, but when we stayed, I was like in third grade. Mm -hmm. um, I think by then we had sort of had the foundation set that, you know, you can do other things. There were things, obviously, that were not like, this is how you have to be. Like, I didn't really put myself in a box or even really identify as anything in particular. I don't think I recognized that I was... Um, a racial minority until wow. I came back to Alabama. Wow. So I would say that because my parents were sort of brave enough to come out of that environment, at least the initial part of our lives were just in a different place that sort of set us up to where we just wanted to do certain things. We didn't feel like we were limited to do things. Mm -hmm. And they were also very encouraging in that they never really told us we couldn't do stuff, you know, like, like apparently I told my mom and I even asked her this not too long ago I said 
when did I say I wanted to be a doctor? And she's like, I don't know. Like ever since you were like small, you always <laughs> said you wanted to be a doctor. Yes, and I'm not sure where I got that from. It's not like I had an example of somebody else that I was looking up to, mm -hmm. maybe except for watching like the Cosby show or something at the wow. time. But, um, you know, she said, I just always said that's what I wanted to do. Yes, and they were encouraging of it. You know, there were, you know, they encouraged us to read, they encouraged us to learn. Um, we went to camps, we went to, you know, any learning opportunities and you know they were very supportive and helpful with that and I think it's because I didn't feel like you know learning was a chore you know they didn't say like you have to do this or else you're gonna get in trouble yes, like it was very much encouraged but in a positive way Wow that's interesting growing up as you said many people do not think about uh, all the things that are limiting them right and uh, everybody is free to think about whatever they want to do there are so many people who want to be doctors at a young age but for many of us that look like us when we grow up we started looking at the statistic and the idea of impossibility tell us maybe we can do it and many people quit but you didn't so you started medical school right but you realize that you are one one person, one unique person out of so many people, right? The mm -hmm. stats, the numbers were there, right? How did you fight that intimidation, imposter syndrome, and all those things that was telling you that maybe you should not be here? You know, I guess I didn't probably think about the being... Um, like unique in that sense, probably until medical school. Like I was even just saying this to somebody the other day, I said, I think if I recognize and knew how, how many hurdles and how difficult it would be, mm -hmm. like maybe I would have been more intimidated, but maybe because I was just so ignorant as mm -hmm. to how many hurdles I had to go over is the reason why I was able to do it. Because if I look back at myself you know, when I was in high school or in college, I think I had way more confidence <laughs> and, yes, yes. and lack of worry then than I do now. So, wow. um, but to, to go back to your question, I think that one, you know, it, it was interesting because, you know, coming from, so a high school where, again, graduated with like 20 something people and I was the first in the class, I was a valedictorian. Um, there weren't other, there were maybe a couple of other black people who took the college level courses because they split you off early on. You wow. either are taking, you know, early in high school, they, you decide if you're gonna learn how to do a trade or if you're gonna take classes like chemistry and biology. Wow. You know, like you have to make a decision. Like yes, the people who are going to college would take those you know, chemistry and biology, um, whereas, you know, the classes in the classroom ended at, like, English and stuff like that, and then they would go off and do um, machine, like, shop or woodworking or something like that. Anyhow, so, uh, so early on in my high school, I felt like, okay, well, I'm capable of doing this, you know, um, so I didn't feel like I was on the bottom. In fact, 
to be honest, I felt like it was pretty easy to do well in school, you know. So in high school, it, it wasn't like difficult. College was a bit of a shift mm -hmm. because coming from a place where I was like the only one black or maybe two black people in like these college level courses, I guess, in high school. Mm -hmm. But then going to an all black undergraduate school yes, was like uh, eye opening. I was like, wow, I had no idea <laughs> black people could do this well, you know, yes, like I even told my mom after being in college for, you know, I don't know how long I came back and I was like, mom, I didn't realize that we were poor, you know, because I guess I just thought everybody lived like we did. Yes, ma'am. You know, because not that I felt like, you know, we were struggling, because mm -hmm. I never felt like we were okay. struggling. Like, everybody was struggling. I mean, we lived in a house. Some people I knew lived in trailers. Other people, you know, um, might, have, might have been on public assistance, mm -hmm. you know, but we weren't. And there were some people who felt like, oh, well, you guys must be doing really well for yourself because you know your dad he by the time we moved back to Alabama he was retired and the fact that he had retirement benefits sort of put us in a different level to some people you know so yes, in my mind I thought well you know I thought we were okay but then I go to a place a bigger city a bigger place I see black people who had not who weren't the first people in their generation to go to college and whose moms or dads were doctors and whose dad or mom could write them a check for their tuition, I just was like, that's unbelievable. I yeah, never man. would have thought that anybody who's black could have their tuition paid for with a check. Wow. <laughs> like, I was like, how is that even possible? I thought everybody was on, like, public, well, not public assistance, but student financial aid, you know? Yes, so anyhow, that was like an eye-opening thing for me because I was like, oh, wow, you know, then I felt sort of special in a different way, not because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm doing great, but like, wow, you really weren't very well off. Mm -hmm. And it also made sort of validated, I guess, like, okay, well, I didn't come from a private school. I went from a, came from a public school from a small town, and I'm still able to do this work, you know, so, so it was sort of validating in a way like, okay, you can do this, even though you didn't even realize how disadvantaged I was, right? Like, mm -hmm. I would certainly fit the the definition of a disadvantaged student today. Yes, so, um, so when I got into medical school, you know, seeing even more people do well, like, because there were like maybe seven black people in our class out mm -hmm. of 110, 120, something like wow. that. So it wasn't a lot, but we were all pretty tight. In fact, um, maybe three or f three or four of those same people who got early acceptance also came in with me. So I knew them as well. Mm -hmm. And so we were all very close. And, um, you know, I, I recognized or, or thought then, okay, well, I, I could do the work like I was you know, the, it, it was a lot more work than I did um, in undergraduate. But at that point, I wasn't really just trying. I never was like, oh, I'm going to be like the best in the class. Like that was never my ambition. Like mm -hmm. I was like, I'm OK yes, just to do well and get past, you know, get through my classes. But, you know, I would see that there were some people who were just like 
brilliant folks, you mm -hmm. know, who could just pick up on things and were always like the highest scores in the whole class and everything. And I was just like, well, I'm probably not that. And I was okay <laughs> with that, you know, because those people were like, oh, just studying all the time. And I don't know, they just didn't seem like they did anything else beyond that. And mm -hmm. I just thought, mm, well, that's not me. But at any rate, I um, didn't, I, I didn't compare myself to them so much because I felt like, well, I'm doing okay with what I have and I don't necessarily want to be stuck studying like yes, 24 hours a day. Yes, ma'am. So that being said, um, what you don't know in terms of like what you don't have mm -hmm. <laughs> or what you could have had or what, you know, maybe that's what protected me from so-called imposter syndrome right because wow. it wasn't like I didn't have that surrounding pressure on me like you're not good enough you're not this you're not that I didn't even know yes, you're right. <laughs> I didn't even know <laughs> what maybe the, if I did I'd feel worse yes ma'am what was the hardest part about medical school oh my god studying you? totally <laughs> I would say so so the very first so high school undergrad you know, I didn't have to study as much. I had to study more the more, you mm -hmm. know, the higher up I went in schooling, but you know, not not too bad. So med school comes around and I'm using my same study tactics of mm -hmm. just sort of like cramming the night before or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And the very first test, so that they give you is an anatomy test. And I think they purposefully do this because they know people are going to um uh probably not do well mm -hmm. and so they give you a test where it's like 20 or 30 percent of the test and um, I totally fail it like I take the test and I totally fail it wow. like awful like mm -hmm. I was like oh my god how could I because I was like I had no idea that they were gonna ask such detail yeah, on this because yeah. I, I was used to sort of um, getting answers right based on things that that, that look familiar and I could pick up on like, oh, well, this looks, yeah, I remember reading something about that and, you know, multiple choice, you yes, know, you can sort of get it right based on um, just memorizing a lot of stuff, right? But this wasn't just memorizing and it was like integrating the information and I realized it was like, I'm going to have to spend a lot more time on this mm -hmm. than just you know, glazing over the information and thinking I can just recall it based on my memory. Just, you know. So, uh, and each thing, it builds on the next. So you can't just like flush it out of your head and like memorize something yes, else for no. the test. So when we had the second part of that test, that 70%, I was able to do so well that I was able to um, either pass or high pass it or something. So like it, I had I made just enough to to overcome the twenty percent that I had completely failed yes, to actually get a, a good passing grade, and and it was, it was because I had to like study like a job like go to class and then like study until like nighttime and then wake up and like it was a full time job. Yes, ma'am. And I just never studied like that before, you yes, know. So. Um, I think that was the hardest part of medical school, just 
really <laughs> pushing yourself to study and to learn, like integrate this information. Yes, um, and, and studying for like step one is like probably one of the hardest things because like, it really is just, you know, a, a grueling amount of information that you need to know mm. and that you'll be tested on. Um, but obviously it's possible. Um, I think past that is not as bad just because some of that stuff you're going to actually be using in practice and mm. the stuff you may never use again, like yes, the Krebs cycle. I mean, I don't know <laughs> what that is. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Wow. So you, when you became a doctor, how hard as an African-American woman to gain your co-workers respect um, in that sense? Was, was it any hard? You know like having to prove did you feel like you had to prove that you were good enough well like i said i think that <laughs> i had more confidence back then than i do now i yes, mean yes. i think that now i'm just like oh you know how am i projecting myself and this and that i didn't think about those things back wow. then at the time i really just i in medical school yes, for yes. instance right like it was in New Orleans, there were, um, you know, obviously minority populations within New Orleans. So, so maybe it was different because I wasn't in a place where, uh, like, I was the only black person ever. You know, mm -hmm. like, we treated patients who were uh, minorities, and you know, there were different kinds of people. Uh, maybe I didn't recognize the systemic racism that sort of put people in certain places where I was treating. Um, people like in the university system, yes, you yes. know, like I don't think I had that awareness at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. But I certainly didn't feel like, oh, I don't deserve to be here, mm -hmm. or if I have something to say, they're not going to listen to me because I'm black or I'm a woman. Like I didn't feel like that. Okay. I think that um, as I went through my training. I think I began, be, I was able to develop more an awareness of that. And I think that I would see how, you know, minorities were treated versus people who were in the majority or how women were treated compared to men. I would start to see and recognize those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that as those things became more apparent to me, I then started to internalize some of that myself and thinking, well, you know, how, how does that fit in in terms of me being in a place? So, you know, I don't think I felt more like a black woman than mm -hmm. when I came to Austin, Texas. Because oh. <laughs> I was a faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston yes, for five years before coming here. Wow. And even though I might have been the first black GYN oncologist in the area, mm -hmm. if not the first, maybe the second, mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was a unicorn mm -hmm. because there were other black people around. There were other you know, black professionals. They might not have been in GYN oncology, mm -hmm. or at least the people I work with too that were not. Uh, minorities, they certainly didn't single me out and like, oh, it's so nice to have a black person here. Like, it wasn't like that. It was like, you know, just going about doing your everyday thing. 
when I came here to Austin, it mm. became very apparent to me wow. that I was a black woman and that I was not in the majority. And I think that was sort of like a slap in the face because mm -hmm. before I didn't feel it there, mm -hmm. maybe because Houston's more diverse, maybe because our population is, the population is more diverse, there's not as much overt racism and all those things. But here, like, you know, 35, there's the black people and the Hispanics, and then there's the white people. There are certain practices that are pretty much only white and, you know, black. You know, it was like very like, what in the world have I stepped into? That was like one of the first times that I felt like I was a black woman in medicine. Whereas before, I was just me in medicine. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. So, from Alabama to here today, you are doing one of the most amazing jobs, one of the most revered jobs in the world, being a doctor, saving, helping save lives, helping improving people's lives, reducing suffering in this world. What does that mean to you? Like, what are some of the biggest benefits you have by doing this job? Oh, it means a whole lot to me. I think that one of the biggest benefits is that, you know, for me, it actually helps me mm -hmm. to think about just life and be um, just inspired by how women, since those are the patients that I take care of, women can endure such suffering yet still have so much faith and have um, hope and grace going through some of the hardest things that they have or are going through in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think seeing that and like just even taking just a small piece of that hope and that strength is just like, you know, so empowering for me because I don't think that I give it to them. I certainly know that I don't give it to them. But, you know, it's amazing to be able to see people walk through and beyond some of the hardest challenges of their life. So it gives me hope to think, well, if, if patients can do these things, if, they, if people can endure such suffering and thrive beyond that, you know, like the, the strength of the human spirit is just, just a, amazing to me yes ma'am uh, we're getting to the last question here but you climbed so many mountains F my first question is what motivated you to wake up every day and keep keep going and the second question is what are some other mountains that you are thinking about climbing i'm sure you are still very young and there's so many things you want to do what are some of your life aspirations well, you know, right now I would say that my kids are like the biggest motivation for me waking up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that they actually do wake me up usually at 6 or 6:30 <laughs> in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a uh, 2-year-old, 2-5-year-old uh, boys, so they're twins. Um, and I feel like for me, um, motivation is getting to do something that would help empower them to be a good people in the world. You know, I feel like no matter what I do, if I can't help to shape and raise 
good men in this world that I haven't really done like anything that I would feel proud of. So I would feel like that is one of my biggest challenges now. How can I be a good example, empower my kids, um, support them, love them, and help nurture them so that they can help make the world a better place and not be a burden, <laughs> but actually help other people and touch other people in other ways. Yes, like, I feel like if I can't do that for my own kids, it's great to do that with other people and patients and stuff, and so I don't doubt that I, in some way, can help patients in those ways, but my own kids, I feel like that's my, where my motivation is right now. Yes, ma'am. Okay, last question. Do you have any advice for that young lady right now in high school or college who thinking, who want to do pre-med, who wanted to be a doctor since they were five years old, but now having that because of all the obstacles that life is throwing at them and do not think that they can accomplish that? Well, I think that we are definitely our worst enemy. You know, I feel like there are so many things that we fail at just because we just didn't try, you know? Um, you know, that cliche, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, yes, right? Yes, But it's true. I mean, I, I think that so many times we're in our own heads about why we can't do something or why we're not going to be good at it. But you won't know until you try, and um, sometimes you surprise yourself. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to uh, keep trying. Keep, you know, one foot in front of the other. Um, keep pressing forward. Keep, keep it on. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mamba Inspire You Can Do It Too podcast. We have another special guest next episode. Make sure you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date. Our YouTube channel, we have a Twitter and Instagram for updates. Look up Mamba Inspire. Peace.